Hillary. I'm Emily. And we're the, we're the sirens. sirens. Today we are talking about the movie Holiday, which is a 1938 film directed by George Cukor. It was produced by Everett Riskin, written by Donald Ogden Stewart and Sidney Buckman, and it was based on a 1928 play by Philip Berry. It stars Katherine Hepburn and Cary Grant, podcast favorites. Um, and the cast also includes Doris Nolan, Jean Dixon, and Edward Everett Horton. Uh, Cary Grant plays a self-made man named Johnny Case, who falls in love with an heiress named Julia Seaton, who's played by Doris Nolan, while they are on vacation at Lake Placid. He meets Julia's family, including Sister Linda, who is played by Katherine Hepburn, who is the wealthy family's black sheep. And, it turns out, the only one who is sympathetic to Johnny's plan to quit working so that he can figure out why it's so important to be working in the first place. Lavish parties, quick quips, and romance ensues. The, <laughs> the down and dirty about um, Holiday. This movie was made at the time when Katherine Hepburn was considered box office poison. <laughs> you know how yeah. it was that time? Um, That's silly so, time. <laughs> I know. So in advance of this movie, the studio boss, Harry Cohn, wanted to take out an, a full-page ad in Variety asking, what is wrong with Katherine Hepburn? <laughs> Question mark. And um, she... Answer, nothing. Him, like, I know. She, she said, please don't do this because they might start responding. So he did not do that. In the um, Broadway play, Katherine Hepburn was actually the understudy mm -hmm. for the role of Linda. Um, and she performed a scene from Holiday for her first screen test, which led to her first film role. Oh. Uh, so clearly this was something she felt a connection with. And so Linda Seton was loosely based on the real person, Gertrude Sanford Leger a former debutante who left high society to become a big game hunter and also then <laughs> spied for the OSS during World War II. <laughs> Although now every time I hear big game hunter, I just think of the Trump sons yeah. posing next to that. So like that part didn't particularly excite me. Being a spy kind of sounds cool. Yeah. I mean, at least like she's working... Like, making her own way in the world instead of resting on her Coasting. laurels the way that Julia does. Yeah. Uh, in the original play, the characters of Nick and Susan Potter were actually wealthy socialites. Oh. But because this movie came out during the Depression, they changed their characters so that they would represent a more common man and Johnny would have more down-to-earth friends, which I thought worked well yeah. in this in this movie. Oh, and you know how they made such a big deal out of the fact that Clark Gable said damn and Gone with the Wind? Uh-huh. Well, this was this movie came out before Gone with the Wind, over a year before, and Katherine Hepburn says damned in it. Um and it was approved by the production code, but she's quoting Shakespeare. Yeah, so. I was going to say she's quoting Shakespeare, so it's fine. <laughs> yeah. So I guess that if you're Playing Lady Macbeth, it's fine, but if you are Rhett Butler just being angry, then not fun. Yeah. That's all I have for trivia. There wasn't as much for this movie. No. We have bioed Catherine Hepburn and Cary Grant, obviously, yeah. <laughs> many times before. So did you pick someone a little bit less well-known? Yes. I picked Edward Everett Horton, who plays Nick Potter, the college professor friend of Johnny Case. So I, I can tell you more about him. 
I think we haven't seen any of this. We haven't seen any movies with him in it yet. I think for the podcast, which is unusual because he was in a lot of movies. I think that were where he he played characters like this, the character that he played here, sort of side important character roles. Mm-hmm. So he was born on March eighteenth, eighteen eighty six, in Brooklyn, which at the time was a separate um, town from New York City. He attended the boys' high school in Brooklyn and Baltimore City College, and he went on to to start his college career at Oberlin College in Ohio. But he was asked to leave after he climbed to the top of a building and got the attention of a crowd that gathered, um, you know, below the building. And then he threw off a dummy, making them think that he had jumped to his death. Um, that, oh my gosh. Yeah, a prank that didn't, <laughs> didn't go off very well. So he left Oberlin and went on to go to Brooklyn Polytechnic and then Columbia University. He began his career on the stage in 1906, singing and dancing and doing a bunch of small vaudeville parts and eventually getting into Broadway productions in 1919. So after about 13 years of of stage work, he moved to LA to break into Hollywood films. It took a couple of years for him to actually get a starring role, which was in the comedy Too Much Business, which came out in 1922. In the late 1920s, he starred in a couple of silent comedies for educational pictures, through educational pictures that he started working in talking pictures. And because he had a had training in being on the stage, he, of course, was very comfortable working, you know, with talkies. So he made that transition from silent to talkie fairly easily. He, during this time, he he also made the transition from using his given name, Edward Horton, professionally, to using his middle name as well, because his, his father, who was also named Edward uh, Everett Horton was like, oh, there's there may be other actors named Edward Horton, but there will ever, only ever be one named Edward Everett Horton, which is funny because his dad was also named Edward Everett Horton, so there was already oh another one. In- <laughs> Whatever, <laughs> it has a nice ring to it. He so as I said, he appeared in a lot of comedies and uh, and movies in the 1930s, usually playing a similar character to the character that he played in, in Holiday, which is sort of a mousy, comedic guy, but is actually kind of assertive and sort of the fast-talking like sidekick. He appeared in The Front Page in 1931, which sort of relates to oh. the... Um, yeah, it was the previous version of His Girl Friday, um, Alice in Wonderland in 1933, The Gay Divorcee in 1934, which was one of several Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers movies that he appeared in, Lost Horizon in 1937, Arsenic and Old Lace in 1944, he was in a Mad, It's a Mad, Mad, Mad World in 1963, and then his last movie was... Cold Turkey, which was in 1971. He worked prolifically and always, like, in these side side roles. Um, he also was pretty busy in radio and television, on TV in the play Sham, which was um, shown on television in 1948, and he appeared in an episode of I Love Lucy, in which he was sort of, like, cast against type to be this, like, amorous suitor in 1952. Mm. I don't know, a suitor of whom, because it was I Love Lucy, but whatever. Yeah, I was um, going to say, like, <laughs> Ethel and Lucy were both married. They're both married, so I don't know who's... 
whatever. And he continued to have, like, guest starring roles in the 1960s. Um, so he was pretty prolific in these, like, as I said, these, like, supporting roles. Baby Boomers, you know, recognized him most as the narrator of the fractured fairy tales in the Rocky and Bullwinkle show, which ran from 1959 to 1961. So I'm, that actually makes me want to go and, like, find some of those on YouTube to see if I can listen to them, yeah. see if I recognize his voice. He does have a great voice. Mm-hmm. I'm not surprised that he did narration. Yeah, I would listen to him talk all day. Yeah, and so he basically worked right up until his death in September of 1970. He died of cancer at the age of 84. I like hearing about working actors like that. Yeah. And he definitely was very familiar to me. Although, like, I couldn't quite place him. But I was like, I've definitely seen him Mm -hmm. in other things. Yeah. And it's funny you said he went to Columbia because when I was looking at the trivia, uh, the telegram that he receives from Johnny is... The address indicates that he would have been a professor at Columbia in this Uh, movie, although they never actually say it. Yeah, I wondered, well, this is getting into it a little bit, but I wondered what he was a (laughs) professor of, but um, anyway, who did you bio for this movie? I bioed Doris Nolan, who I did not know, but who I thought was very good in this piece. Mm -hmm. She was basically, this was her most famous movie role, and uh, she did a lot of stage acting other than that. But she was born on July 14th, 1916, and her father, Frank Nolan, had a business importing woolen goods. And she began performing on stage when she was in high school in New Raquel, New York. And after graduation, she joined the Provincetown Players in 1933, where she worked as the director's secretary to pay her tuition. The following summer, she joined the Clinton Hollow Theater in Poughkeepsie, New York. An talent agent saw her play the female lead in The Late Christopher Bean and got her a contract with Fox Studios. They gave her a small role in a Shirley Temple picture called Our Little Girl, but she messed up her scene so many times that Fox dropped her from the movie. (laughs) And I know, I felt so bad that I could feel for her in that, you know, you're waiting for your break and then this is what happens. Yeah. Um, So she switched to Broadway and she had more success there. Although she was only 17 at the time, she was cast as the female lead in Night of January 16th. And she was super nervous about the role because she was supposed to be playing an older femme fatale who was the mistress of a rich businessman and also suspected of murdering him. What? (laughs) Kind of a stretch for a teenager, but the show was a big success and she got positive reviews. And after she left left that play, she went back to Hollywood and got a contract with Universal Pictures. From that point on, she continued to move back and forth between movies and theater through the 1930s and 40s, and her most prominent film appearance was this 1938 version of Holiday, and her subsequent film roles went downhill, but she reinvigorated her Broadway career with an 18-month stint in The Doe Girls, which was a really popular comedy about life during World War II. Oh. She married a Canadian actor named Alexander Knox in a civil ceremony on December 30th, 1944. And her final Broadway appearance was in The Closing Door, alongside her husband, who authored that play. Oh. Uh, and it got really bad reviews and closed after just a few weeks. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> um, but her husband was political, and he ended up getting blacklisted by the House Un-American Committee. Um, so he couldn't get work in Hollywood anymore, and they moved to Britain in the early 1950s. 
Um, and that's where Nolan remained for the rest of her life. And she worked uh, in regional stage productions and on television there. And her final television appearance was on an episode of Brideshead Revisited in 1981, which was like a really famous British miniseries. Oh. And she died on July 29th, 1998. Wow, 1998? I know. That's So she was born in 1916. That's a good long life. Yeah. And I also read that she more or less retired from acting and moved on to working at an art gallery and, like, kind of having a quiet life, which I thought sounded charming. Yes. And I thought she was good in that role as Julia. Yeah, she was good. There were a lot of good actors, I think, in this movie. It was, like, a good showcase for a lot of good acting. Well, should we get into it? Yes. You Had you seen this movie before? I had seen it before, but it had been a while. Okay. So I didn't really remember exactly what happened. Yeah. But then I was watching, I was like, oh yeah, this weird scene. <laughs> <laughs> and this weird scene. One thing that struck me in this movie was that as much as I like Cary Grant, he didn't, this character did not appeal to me as much as a lot of other characters I've seen him play. Yeah, yeah, at some point in this movie, I guess towards the end of it, where I was realizing what his character wants, which is that he's his character is basically like, I've been working since I'm, I was 10 years old, I'm 30 years old now, I want to like take time off to figure out what I'm working for, which is like admirable, except for yeah. he's basically like, I have made this decision, I'm marrying this woman, and it's not that important to me that I tell her her ahead of time what I'm planning to do, which is kind of off-putting, except for that, on the other hand, his fiance, who hasn't, as far as we know, worked a freaking day in her own life, is like, oh, I have found this man who I think can follow in my grandfather's footsteps, go from rags to riches, and I'm gonna be the one to, like, you know, mold him and make him into this, like, new financial genius or whatever, which is... Also a little bit off-putting. Yeah, that neither of them share their plans for the other person. After I thought it was especially odd that Johnny did not share this about himself with her and just wanted to go ahead and get married. Like because in in the early on in the movie he says to his friends, She wants me the life I want, the home I want, the fun I want. Yeah. Which I thought was like, this is not a good way to enter a relationship where you're just wanting someone to glom on to what you want. Right. And, like, do whatever you want all the time. Right. I was like, that's not going to work. You need to factor in that they might have some goals of their own. Right. I mean, part of the issue probably is that they, you know, they have known each other for, what, ten days? Yeah, ten days. Or whatever. And by then they're, you know, it's... 10 days or two weeks or whatever when we see them you know for the first time and by that time they've like already gotten engaged and they're like dead set on getting married within the next like two weeks so like they were going to get married having known each other for like a month which (laughs) yeah and and they repeatedly say throughout the movie how certain they are and how well they know each other right which like that this is the person. By the end of the movie, spoiler alert, they are not together anymore, and then he's with Julia's sister, Linda, who's played by Catherine Hepburn. They've only known each other for two weeks or a month or however long. Yeah. This, I, I'm not entirely clear about the, like, the timeline. Like, we start basically on Christmas Eve, Christmas time, you know, it's New Year's Eve, and then, you know, and then they're supposed to get married on January 10th, which they don't. 
Yeah, it's a pretty like short timeline. So he didn't really learn any lessons from from no. his failed engagement with Julia. I actually did. I like. I liked Carrie. Well, Johnny's ideas about like taking time to figure out like how to get meaning and fulfillment in life and not just working endlessly towards yeah nothing without really like examining it and not having everything just be about accumulating wealth but I also thought like if I was marrying that person I would kind of be like all right that's cool but I also want to make sure that like that we're gonna have a place to live and be okay yeah and like this isn't gonna be like 40 years of you chasing nothing while you know we're running from debt collectors or something right. like that yeah like in some ways it like works out pretty nicely that he ends up marrying into a rich family because then it doesn't really matter yeah. what he does because yeah because yeah. he's got a n- nice little nest egg this movie didn't do very well at the time that it was released because it was 1938 and like people in the depression were like screw you rich people give us a job in a bank (laughs) we'll work they could only sympathize so much with a guy who was like i've been working since i was 10 i want to take a break yeah when he's 30 years old and also them being so rich and still constantly focused on getting richer yeah yeah it wasn't quite the right audience (laughs) i think no and in some ways it reminded me a little bit of the capra film you can't take it with you have you seen that Mm -hmm. one yeah except that one was better I felt like the message of that one was better which was basically they didn't really have money in that one they just kind of were eccentric and cut and like got by yeah Right. But in this movie, it was like, well, be really rich and then do what you want. Right. (laughs) And continue to get richer. Also, it, like, bothers me that they didn't ever really, they didn't ever seem to do anything with the riches that they, like, made. The father was on, you know, boards of other businesses, but it wasn't like they were like, oh, yes, we've made many millions of dollars this year, and so we're going to, like, make sure to redistribute it to, you know, the soup kitchen yeah. or places that actually need it. No, it it seemed like no kind of a life. Like, even when they were still going through with the marriage, and then the father said, oh, you'll go on your honeymoon, and you can meet with all of these business contacts yeah. while you're on the trip, and then we can expand more. And I was like, oh, yeah, this this is not the kind of life that... <laughs> That Johnny wants. No. no. Right. <laughs> Which, like, to his credit, I guess, like, he was he was like, I don't want to work on my honeymoon. <laughs> this is not yeah. going to work for me. I often, like, think that, you know, the way someone behaves and, like, treats you in the early stages of their relationship is a pretty good indicator of how things are going to be in, like, the best times. Yeah. And if on your honeymoon the person's working the whole time, like, your marriage is going to suck because that person's never going to be there. Yep. What did you think of Katherine Hepburn's performance? I thought it was a pretty representative performance for her. Just that, like, you know, she's going along and she has all these, you know, quotable lines, like, throughout most of the movie, and she's the, you know, she's the black sheep, which seems very... Like, the, yeah. the, the character she's usually, like, cast in, or at least, like, of the movies that we've seen just for the podcast, like, that's, she usually plays the black sleep, and she's always a little bit, like, frenetic and a little bit, like, histrionic, and, you know, and then at the end of the movie there are several, like, tearful monologues where she's like, oh, please, somebody, try and stop me, and, yeah. like, okay, Catherine, <laughs> we have seen yeah. this before. 
So it's hard for me to be like, oh, that's a different character than the one that she, like, played in the Philadelphia story. Yeah, I felt like this character was kind of similar to her in Mm -hmm. real life. (laughs) Yeah. I thought she was really funny in the role, though. I mean, she has more funny lines in the first half of the movie, Mm -hmm. but I really did laugh out loud at her delivery on a bunch of the lines, and I... Like, her tone was great. So I thought she was good, but... And I thought that she... So she's been paired with Cary Grant in four movies. Mm-hmm. And I think they have good camaraderie, but I just never buy any romantic chemistry between them. Yeah, I don't buy that they would have any... Like, actually have any kind of romantic feelings for each other. Yeah, they seem like they have fun acting together. Mm-hmm. And can we talk about the, like, disturbed and dysfunctional dynamics of their family? Yes, can we please? Where they're just like, how many ways can we manipulate each other into getting what we want? Yeah, it was, I remember watching, when it was coming back to me when I watched this time, I, you know, I, when I'd seen this movie before, I liked it. But I also was kind of trying to figure out, like, what was going on. Like, it was hard for me to understand what levels of, like, abuse or, like, weird stuff was within the family. If it was supposed to be implied or yeah. not. Because that one they they talk about their mother and she was kind of the light of the family. And they were like, well... She couldn't even stand being in this family, and then she died. And then I was like, well, is that supposed to mean she committed suicide to, like, leave the family? <laughs> or Well, Ned says that when he's super drunk, right? So he... I, I didn't really read that as, like, a serious thing. That was something that he said out of drunkenness. You know, I sort of imagined that she... You know, got sick and died or whatever. That was... Yeah, I, I prefer that version of it. Yeah. But... Otherwise, that's, like, a super dark thing to just be like, oh, yeah, she killed herself. There is a lot of darkness in this. Like, I thought that could be legit because the way that Linda and Ned talk about the family and, like, their emotional lives is super disturbing. Like, Ned openly says, I am just drinking until I die because I, like, cannot stand to be here. And he has been unable to make his own life choices and is completely under the control of his father. There's that scene in the sitting room where his father is like, I would like you to make a practice of being in the office until six. And Ned is like, why? What? I don't have, there, I don't have anything to do after three. And his dad, it like doesn't take that as a cue of like, oh, let me give you more work to do. He's like, you will just be there. <laughs> just sit at your desk basically yeah. and pretend. And Ned is like, oh my God, <laughs> I'm not a productive member of society and I don't get to make my own choices. Yeah. Later in the movie, Linda tries to get him to come on the trip and he can't he wants to go and the father's like no you're not going and he's like okay i guess i'm not going (laughs) yes he's so drunk like the entire movie that i can't believe that no one tries to do anything about it yeah and then with linda it seems like her pain is that she has tried to do things in her life and everyone just like, her family just belittles her, mm-hmm. foils her plans, and, like, won't let her follow through with things. And they just kind of, like, laugh at her and are like, oh, that's Linda. Yeah. She's always making a scene. Yeah. Oh, that's Linda. She thinks she's going to do something, but she can't. Ha ha. And, like, her whole life has been like... Yeah. Well, and then at the end, where Julia lays into Linda after Julia has already told Johnny that she's not going on the boat and basically she's not going or whatever. And, Juli- and Linda... Linda's like, you know, why aren't you going? And Julia lays into her about how, like, 
Linda is always trying to run everything and trying to make decisions for for the two of them and whatever. It was just like 100% gaslighting because we have seen it's totally the opposite. Linda tries to like propose a nice thing, you know, like a nice, like a small engagement party. And, you know, and then in the next scene, we see Linda and her father going, oh, well, we know, you know, Linda's silly ideas. She's so silly. And so it's just like, super mean it was and then it seemed like all they really cared about was keeping up appearances like ned is like so visibly intoxicated but they don't care because he just shows up at the party yeah (laughs) and i felt like that was a big theme of the whole movie was that in these upper echelons of society that no one is sincere and everyone just puts up on a good face and goes through the motions, but they're all really, like, hating each other, talking about each other, or not being honest about what's going on, and it seemed like Johnny was not part of that, and, like, couldn't, you know, he wasn't really participating in that, and then Linda also seemed like she wasn't able to put up a front, which is why she didn't come down to the party. Mm-hmm. Well, and Johnny but is, like, like the, acceptable, you know, they can say, like, oh, yes, he's he's a hayseed, but he's a hayseed who's going places, and he's willing to, like, act the part and play along with this, like, ridiculousness during the first part of the New Year's Day, New Year's Eve party, you know, and then he sort of has the the sense kicked into him <laughs> during, you know, when he goes up to the playroom and is there with the Potters and yeah. Ned and Linda, and he's like, oh, right, I'm not a stuffed shirt. I actually, like, have feelings and a moral grounding that's, like, different from just, like, working from, working for the money and trying to get ahead. Yeah. I was of two minds about that whole, like, playroom thing, because on the one part I thought, you know, this is good that they're trying to keep some normalcy to themselves, like, some area where they can be themselves, but it also was kind of creepy that it was still set up like a kid's room, mm-hmm. and, like, with their toys, and... That that was where they, where Linda liked to hang out and like, like the old dolls and like stuffed animals were there. And I was like, you look like you're maybe like 28. Yeah. (laughs) Maybe, maybe you should. Put this stuff away. Yeah. Like make some changes or something. And Ned even said at one point, this place gives me the creeps. Yeah. But on the other hand, there are like three grown adult children who still live in this like mausoleum. So. Yes. Like not much has changed. The house was, it was insane. Did you think it looked like a museum? Yes, it was bananas. Well, and I loved the scene where, like, you know, Nick and Susan, like, sort of accidentally find themselves on the fourth floor, and, you know, and Nick has this, like, one-liner of, like, oh, it appears to have been a residence at one point, which is, like, exactly (laughs) what it looks like. It really was. The elevator part, I thought, was really funny, Mm -hmm. how nobody could figure out how to use the elevator. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and I love that it was, like, an ongoing thing throughout the movie. Yeah. The Potters were just hilarious. I love, I love them. them in this movie. I love them. Well, and so the woman who played Susan is that that actress is um, Jean Dixon. This was her last movie, but we saw her previously as the maid Molly in um, My Man Godfrey. <laughs> oh yes, yeah. yes. I thought she looked familiar too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's one of my favorite. I mean, I just love Ed- Edward Everett Horton and Jean Dixon anytime. Yeah, I thought they worked well together too. Mm-hmm. Like they had great energy yeah i totally believe that they were a like you know a fun-loving couple who were you know were of modest means but generous and you know a family
family for Johnny. Yes. Um, did you like how as soon as Julia announced her engagement, then everyone at the party kept saying to Linda, now you have to find a husband. Yeah. Now you have to find a husband. I was like, that's not what you say to people. <laughs> like, just because their sister got engaged. Like, that's, you just say congratulations yeah. and move on. Although, as the uh, the second sister, I feel like I experienced that a lot when my my sister got engaged. And oh I was my like, gosh, that's awful. Okay. <laughs> thanks, guys. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> but yeah you're right just say congratulations move on (laughs) did you notice how when johnny was talking about not trying to make a lot of money and you know taking time away from working all the time that the father accused him of being un-american yes i did oh so that's what it is to be american just uh focused on getting rich yeah it turns out say that to a bunch of people who can't get jobs during the depression great idea yeah (laughs) wonderful another random thing that i loved during over the course of this movie was just that like you know johnny case and and the potters i mean those are like normal seeming names or like not names that like anyone would mess up but people kept saying johnny chase and and the porters instead of the potters and it was just this like on pure silliness why is this happening do you think people were doing it on purpose to kind of show that they were nobodies i think for johnny maybe because they were like he didn't have a like prominent name enough for them to remember but it it was just sort of absurd i think for the for the potters I don't know. I didn't really get the function of it. It just was, like, funny to me that it was, you know, like, these two very, like, waspy names that, like, no one ever could say correctly. I guess because they were waspy names, but not actually, like, names of stature. Yeah, it wasn't, like, the Lowells and the Montgomery's. That's right. <laughs> it wasn't the Seatons. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, beautiful girl. What a gorgeous creature, beautiful girl. Let me call a preacher, what can I do but give my heart to you? Oh, well, we should talk about the costumes, because I have a lot of notes about that. Oh, yeah. I remember watching this movie when I was in, like, middle school or whatever, and seeing the rough, I don't even, I don't know what it's called. The The muff? The muff thing, yeah, the muff thing, that um, Julia wears to church. That's, like, bigger on one side than the other. And when I was in middle school, I was like, what is that? And, you know, like, it's been several years since I was in middle school. And yet still, I watched this movie and was like, what the hell is that? Why is it bigger on one side? (laughs) I was thinking the same thing. I was, like, I recognized it as a muff, but I have never seen one that looks like that. Yeah. Bef- I don't know. I guess it was supposed to be high fashion. Sure. I mean, Johnny makes fun of it, and he's right. Yeah. I 100% <laughs> agree with that. What other... F- That's the same outfit where she's wearing the elf hat, too. Yes! Isn't it? Yeah. That ridiculous. Which was, um, which was very interesting. Yes. <laughs> I loved her silk pajamas. Yes. Julia's. And when she went in to manipulate her father into approving of the marriage, and she was wearing those silk pajamas... And she brought him a hot chocolate. Yeah. I was like, girl, you're going to get your marriage approved. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. This is the way you do it. Did those pajamas have this shoulder is, pads in them, do you think? Oh, because you can't go to bed without shoulder pads. <laughs> I know. I know. I I personally don't sleep without my shoulder pads. <laughs> it's essential. I also noticed that they dressed 
Johnny, like, fairly shabby. Mm-hmm. Like, his suits were sort of ill-fitting, and, like, they, he had that, like, askew, you know, sad-looking bow tie. Yeah. And I liked that they did that because it did show that he wasn't of the same class as them and also didn't care that much right. about appearances. Yeah. Well, yeah, that he was like, well, this is... This is what I have. This is what I'm wearing. And I know you don't like it, Julia, but, like, I have nothing else. So. <laughs> yeah. I also had a note. Catherine Hepburn looks absolutely fabulous in that black column gown. Yes. That she wore with, like, the beautiful... Ne- like, she just can wear a gown. Yeah. Because <laughs> she's teeny tiny and tall. <laughs> yeah. I, I feel like not a lot of people could pull that... But she's so, yeah, she's, like, real thin and so tall that it just looked great on her. Yeah. Um, I did not like Julia's black gown with the giant corsage thing no. on the front. No, it was terrible. Also, Cousin Laura's dress, I think, during the New Year's Eve party, it was, like, the neck was really weird. Where it, like, it was super low, and then I think there was, like, an opening then, like, below the neckline, so you could gathered strangely and, like, had an unusual amount of, like, skin showing, like, of her, like, midriff, yeah. where I was like, it's yes. it's December in New York. <laughs> Why are you dressed like that? <laughs> like, well, she probably doesn't have to go outside. True. That's just, true. She's just carried from place to place. I also noticed that in the uh, final scene, Catherine Hepburn wears these beautiful black cage heels that looked very modern. Oh, I'm going to have to go back and look at those. They looked like something, you know, I would wear them now. They looked contemporary and they were really beautiful. Oh. And that was it. In that, I, in the last family scene, they had everyone else in the family was wearing black and then Linda was wearing white but then those cage heels and I don't know if they did it on purpose to be like she's the one person who's going to get out of this crazy <laughs> family yeah or what but I it was very striking on the screen yeah yeah that woman can, could wear an outfit yes she could I was glad that for once though she was not the one with the most ridiculous hat <laughs> in the movie it's <laughs> true yeah. Because normally she'd be in the elf hat, but this time she was fine. Right. She wore sensible clothing. Yeah, it was interesting in this movie how they used clothing, like you said, to sort of show differences in class and differences in, in status. Yeah. There are lots of opportunities for them to do that. Yes. And they talked about it a lot, too, like with the tie and then Susan had a run in her stockings mm-hmm. and like that kind of stuff. Yeah, I have been that person at a party where I'm like, oh god, everyone everyone looks so nice, and I have a run in my stocking. <laughs> uh, no one ever notices or cares. No. Well, I guess in that setting they would, but in normal life yeah. they would not. No. We all want to help one another. Human beings are like that. We want to live by each other's happiness, not by each other's misery. Did you think the movie had a social justice message? Um, I think so. Just the the idea of not just working for money just to make money, but to figure out you know why you're working. It had I, I you know having this sort of like vocational question at its like core. I think made it have this like uh, social justice thrust to it. I mean, it wasn't so much like oh I'm going to make money and make the world a better place, but it was basically like questioning you know working for money's sake, just like the capitalistic foundation on which Western society and American society 
in particular is founded on. However, <laughs> there are two things I re- noticed this time watching that I was like, oh, this is a movie of its time. They're in the playroom for the first time, and they're, Ned and, and uh, Linda are riffing on, like, oh, Johnny has to come from some kind of family, and what's his social standing? And it's, you know, and they're, like, talking about, like, oh, there's, like, a, isn't there a judge case, or... You know, these, like, the southern family that he must have come from. And there's a moment where they sort of do a riff on slave language, which I was like, I didn't remember that (laughs) from having watched this. And then there's this moment, you know, they're in the playroom again on on New Year's Eve, and they're all playing or whatever, and then the cousins come in, the, like, cousin that nobody likes and his wife. And they come in, and the way that Linda and Ned greet him, greet them, is by giving the Nazi salute, which I was like, all right, by 1938, you would all know what the Nazi salute is, but it's 1938, so you don't know what that means, so you're just, like, calling him a little Hitler. (laughs) This is weird. Yeah. Is that really what they were doing? Because when they did that, I was like, what... What like it, that's kind of what it looked like to me, but I was like, this has to be something else. I don't know. I like I was sort of interpreted it as the like uh, like a reference to the Nazi salute, just because it was 1938 and they would have seen it, and and it would I think pe- they would still be able to joke about it because. But I don't know. It it I mean now like that's what I saw when I yeah you're right and the sort of like mocking of like that southern judge scene i really stuck out to me also yeah as terrible now that i realize that they were doing a nazi salute that also seems horrible (laughs) but um i did think in general that the sort of like anti-capitalist sentiment and that being shown as a positive thing in the movie was sort of social Mm justice and at one point linda also mentions like working with oh right um, a union that's like going on strike or something like that in new jersey yeah so there's mention of labor yeah so i i thought it did have one somewhat but it was all very like philosophical like you didn't actually get to see anything played out right like it wasn't through action right there we don't see what happens with johnny and like what is he actually because if it's just like i'm just gonna take some time off and like Hang out on a beach here for a while. Right. I mean, I don't know if that's really doing much for the world, but we don't see that part. I guess that's the sequel. That's right. Holiday 2. <laughs> Back from Bora Bora. <laughs> <laughs> no, they're going to France. They're taking the boat to France, right? Because that's where the... Oh, that's true. Not a great time to go to France. That's right. Really. They're going to run into Nanochka and No, that's, I think, before. Anyway. Yeah. They're, they're, they'll run into some... Some labor activists in Paris, and it'll be fine. I've been living my own life, making my own decisions for a long while now. It's impossible to go back to being treated like a child again. Uh, what about the Bechtel test? Did you think it passed? That is a good question. I I don't think it does because you know most of the the most of the opportunities for 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 conversations between women. Or between the two sisters, and it was all even if they weren't directly talking about Johnny, there was it was all based on the the premise of oh Julia's getting married to Johnny, like that's the new thing that we're basically all talking about all the time. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I was gonna say I thought it technically passed because they do talk about their 
sister dynamic and yeah. relationship somewhat, but like you're right that it's basically all revolving around all their conversation revolves around whether or not she's going to marry Johnny. Yeah. Although unlike a lot of other movies we've watched, there was a lot of there were a lot of scenes that were just between the sisters and there was a lot of dialogue between the sisters which I liked. Yeah. So I mean, but it's I didn't think it was a very feminist movie overall. Yeah, I agree. And how about how at the very end when Linda shows up on the ship, Johnny just like immediately kisses her. And he has like literally just broken off the engagement with her yeah. sister that day, basically. Yeah. And then they don't say anything. They don't discuss anything. It's just like, oh, she showed up. Now we're making out. Yeah. Like, <laughs> that seemed very odd to me. Yeah. I was like, that's the end? You know, there's that like the scene between the Potters and Linda where Linda goes there and gets the sense that like, oh, they know that I'm in love with Johnny. I guess like I imagined that there was like a scene we didn't see where they had like a similar conversation with Johnny where they're like, oh, Johnny's in love with Linda. So they're like, they seem like the wise ones who are like, yeah, we, we get what's happening. We get what's actually happening. We know what you're saying, but we get what's yeah. actually happening and that Julia is not the right one for you. Linda's. The thing that bothers me about that is that if Julia had showed up at the boat, wouldn't he just have been with Julia then? Like, there's no point where he makes a decision that's like, no, I don't want to be with Julia. I want to be with Linda. Linda. It's just like, well, Julia said no, so now I'm with Linda because she showed up. Yeah, she's the one who showed up. It's basically like... Who, who is willing to glom onto my dream? That's right. I mean, I guess there was that uh, on New Year's Eve where, you know, they're, everyone's singing Old Lang Syne and they're, like, standing in the window and, you know, he, like, goes to kiss her. So we're like, oh, maybe he has feelings for her. But, yeah, he never is like, oh, right. It, it, he doesn't say, I'm not marrying Julia because I want to marry Linda. He's not married Julia, and oh, here's Linda. Yeah, and it does seem like she really believes in him, and she makes that big speech of like, whatever he did, I believe in him, and I would stand by him. And his peanuts. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I guess he got what he wanted. Yeah. <laughs> and I guess she got what she wanted, too, because she, what one of the things that she didn't want was to like be stuck in that mausoleum any longer. Yeah, I was glad she got out. Although part of me was like, you didn't need to marry someone to get out you could just leave yeah although she tried apparently and her father wouldn't let her like he wouldn't let her take a nursing course yeah that father was awful he was terrible um <laughs> <laughs> uh, well overall what rating would you give this movie so i saw this movie like i said in when i was in middle school the first time and for the most part it has like there were no surprises to it for me seeing it again however many years later. There were no surprises in the plot, except for those, like, oh, the Hitler salute. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it wasn't like, oh, suddenly this is a different movie than I remember seeing. Which, I don't know what... No one cares about that. <laughs> but, um, you know, I would be inclined to give it, like, a four, partly because of that. Just that mm-hmm. it, like, like, it stands up for me um, as an individual viewer. Um, and I think it was unique in that it, like, talked about work and, and vocation and, you know, and as a, if there were, you know, if someone were to say, okay, like, I haven't seen a Cary Grant movie, I haven't seen a Catherine Hepburn movie, I haven't seen, like, 
I don't watch a lot of old movies. Where should I start? I think this is a really, this would be a good movie to, very representative of movies of its time. Yeah, so I think I would probably give it a four. What about you? Yeah, I I was thinking, I was going to say a three, but then after you gave your pitch, now I'm going to say (laughs) (laughs) 3.5. It's still not an all about it. Because I think no, no. I mean, we're never going to get there, Cass. No, we never are. We might. We might. There's a couple this season that I'm hopeful about. Yeah. I enjoyed watching it. I thought it was funny. I thought there was a lot of great acting in it. I liked the stars. I didn't love any of the characters. Mm-hmm. So I think that's why I didn't. it's not higher for me. But I also, like, didn't hate any of the main characters. Yeah. But mostly I just thought it was... Like, it was a fun movie, and it really kept my attention, and I liked spending time with Katherine Hepburn and Cary Grant. I thought Katherine Hepburn was, like, exceptionally good at this. Mm-hmm. I liked that about it. And I liked that it was anti-wealth, also. Yeah. <laughs> you might be surprised to hear that I liked that it was anti-wealth. On <laughs> <laughs> brand. So, yes. I like all these movies of the 30s where, like, the people trying to get rich are the bad guys, because... It's not like that in a lot of the other times. Yeah. So, yeah, I thought it was great. And did we pick our next movie yet? I think we did. Our next movie is Singing oh, okay. in the Rain. May it please the court, I submit that my entire line of defense is based on the proposition that persons of the female sex should be dealt with before the law as the equals of persons of the male sex. Follow the Screen Sirens on Twitter at the Screen Sirens. And leave us a review on iTunes or SoundCloud to help other people find us. Thanks for listening. After all, tomorrow is another day.